Okay, let's do some time, date and time, or dates. Friday, July 9th, 2021. Daily Power Parsha. Here we go. Sixth and seventh readings begin now. Numbers chapter 34, verse 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall inherit the land on your behalf. Elazar, the Kohen, and Joshua, the son of Nun. They are the dynamic duo, like Moses and Aaron, of that first generation of the Exodus. We have Elazar, the son of Aaron, and Joshua, the um, successor of Moses. Lazar the Kohen, Joshua the son of Nun, will be the leadership. You shall take one chieftain from each tribe to help you to acquire the land. These are the names of the men. So now we're listing the names of the leaders of the tribes that are going to help conquer and divide and inherit the land of Israel when they go in. Here we go. For the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. You know Caleb, right? Who was Caleb? Caleb was the dude. Caleb was the other spy of the 12 spies who was, who remained faithful to God in addition to Joshua. So Joshua was the leader. Caleb was the leader of the tribe of Judah. For the tribe of the sons of Shema, of Simeon, Samuel, the son of Amir. For the tribe of Benjamin, Elida, the son of Kislan. The chieftain for the tribe of the sons of Dan is Buki, the son of Jogli, no, Yugli. For the sons of, jo- of Yosef, the chieftain of the tri- for the tribe of the sons of Manasseh, Chaniel, the son of Ephod. The chieftain for the tribe of the sons of Ephraim, Kimuel, the son of Shiftan. The chieftain for the tribe of the sons of Zebulun, Zebulun, Elitzaphon, the son of Parnach. The chieftain of the tribe of the sons of Issachar, or Issachar, is Paltiel, the son of Azan. The chieftain for the tribe of the sons of Asher was Achihud, the son of Shalomi. The chieftain of the tribe of the sons of Naphtali was Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the ones whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance of the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. These are the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes who would be involved in the division of the land once they would go into the land of Israel. So obviously at the helm of it all was the high priest, Elazar, and the leader who would be Joshua, and the 12 tribal leaders who we just listed by name, these are new tribal leaders. We've listed many tribal leaders over the last several books of the Torah. We've encountered them before, like when they counted, um, there were censuses, and, and, and the tribal leaders helped with the census. We've had names. We had the spies. Each tribe gave a, you know, gave a representative. We've had multiple iterations where the Torah lists the leaders of the tribes. This is going to be the leadership that takes them into the land of, uh, land of Israel and divides the land. Let's continue Numbers chapter 35. That's pretty straightforward. Let's continue. The Lord spoke to, to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, I mean, that's kind of where they're going to stay until the end, right? Until the end of the five books. Command the children of Israel that they shall give to the Levites. Look at this. They shall give to the Levites from their hereditary possession cities in which to dwell. In other words, the children of Israel are going to get the land. The land of Israel is going to be divided by the tri- into the, in different portions for the tribes. What God is now telling Moses is that every tribe should give from their possession land for the Levites to dwell. And you shall give the Levites open spaces around the cities. Talk about city planning. So you have a city, an open space. Now, you have to remember, 
The whole thing that we've set up until now is that the Levite, the tribe of Levi, which includes the Kohanim and the Levim, the, the priests and the Levites, that tribe does not get a portion in the land of Israel. So one might ask the simple question, so where did they live? If they didn't get a portion of the land of Israel, so where did they live? They didn't get their own state, if you will, but they got cities throughout the land. Does that make sense? They got cities. So they didn't get, just again, picture the United States, right? 50 states. A state, a state, a state, a state, a state. So the land of Israel was divided into states, 12 states, or I guess nine and a half states now. State, 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 state. The Levites, the tribe of Levi, did not get a state. They didn't get a, a, a portion of land. What they got, so where did they live? What, they, they lived on benches in the, uh, in the temple? They, they, they slept on the floor. Well, where did they live? They have houses? They did. They lived in cities, specially designated Levite cities that were gifted to them, if you will, by the tribes as per God's command over here, right? The children of Israel, that means the other tribes, shall give to the Levites from their own hereditary possession cities in which to dwell. All right, these cities, Rabbi, let's, yes. Rabbi, we haven't heard recently talk about the, the Mishkin, the tabernacle. It's still there. It's just still, okay. It's still, now in the desert, in the desert, so the way it was is, the tabernacle was, was in the middle, and everyone was in tents, right? And no one had a, a house, you were in a portable tent. So, and the Levites were around it in tents, and then around it were the tribes. But when they would go into Israel, so they're going to build a temple at some point, a permanent dwelling. It's not going to travel. No one's going to travel. Everyone's going to get land and become a farmer and, you know, whatever it is, whatever their job is. And that's it. But what about the Levites? Where do they live? Around the temple? In tents still? Like, what are they going to live? How are they going to live? So the answer here, Hashem tells Moshe, God tells Moses, this is what you're doing. Tell the tribes that you've got to give cities for the Levites. In your property, give them, give them cities. This is also a way, by the way, for the Levites to not stay isolated, but rather to have, to be amongst the people, because the Levites, of course, were, you know, the spiritual guides of the people. They were, you know, running, when I say Levites, I don't mean the Levites as opposed to the, the priests, both the priests and the Levites from the tribe of Levi. That was, bo both are from the Shevet Levi, but from that tribe. So to live amongst the people in the various parts of the land was a good thing because you would spread the influence around as opposed to being concentrated in one area. So now let's continue with verse 3. These cities shall be theirs for dwelling, and their open spaces shall be for their cattle, their property, and for all their needs. Now, did they have cattle and property? I guess whatever... Let's see if there's a Rashi on this. I guess whatever they... Rashi says their personal necessities. Okay, I guess they had something. Because they had something. Okay, let's continue inside. Verse 4. The areas of open space for the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward 1,000 cubits all around. So you have a city. And from the wall of the city, you measure 1,000 cubits. And that's how much the open space shall be. This is very important when you're speaking to a tribe. You say, hey, Reuben, how's it going? Good. How's it going by you? Fantastic. I got a thing. Hey, I got a question for you. How's about you give a city in your space, designate a city for the Levites to live? Okay. How much space do you need? 
Now we're talking, right? This is why Torah tells us how much space. You have to build a city. It doesn't say how big the city is. Um, but it says... The area of open space, one second. One second, one second, one second, one second, one second. Oh yeah, so what, however big the city itself is, it doesn't define how big the city is, but the space outside the city is a thousand cubits on each side. So imagine you have a city, thousand this way, thousand that way, thousand cubits that way, thousand cubits that way. That's the perimeter of the open space around the city. So you shall measure, verse 5, you shall measure from outside the city. 2,000 cubits on the eastern side, 2,000 cubits on the southern side, 2,000 cubits on the western side, 2,000 cubits on the northern side. With the city in the middle, this shall be your city's open spaces. 2,000 cubits essentially because it's 1,000 on each side. So you measure across, and you're getting 2,000. Now, now, let's continue. So these are Levite cities. Now we have additional cities. Among the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be six cities of refuge. Now, these are interesting. In addition to the Levite cities, there also has to be uh, cities of refuge, are a miklat, which you shall provide as places to which a murderer can flee. Now, murderer is a little bit harsh. This is somebody who kills someone accidentally. It's not intentional. It's not premeditated. It is accidental. Um, and the idea is that we want to give that person a safe haven which to live so as not to uh, be taken, uh, be, um, uh, that there shouldn't be revenge taken against them by the, by, the, by the relatives of the one who was killed accidentally. So we put them in a city of refuge. Um, and these cities of refuge are also Levite cities. In addition to them, you shall provide 42 cities. So here we go. Take a look at the number. So you might have been wondering how many Levite cities were there. We have an answer now. Six of them are cities of refuge. In addition, there are 42 cities uh, for the Levites. So what's 42 plus 6? Yeah, you got it, 48. That's what verse 7 says. All the cities you shall give to the Levites shall number 48 cities, them with their open spaces. So in total, throughout the tribes, there are 48 cities. Now, if I'm doing the math, and I know it's a little bit wonky because two and a half tribes um, inherited outside of Israel, so I get that. But if I'm doing the math, it's just simply, 48 cities divided by 12 tribes, that means that each tribe is giving about four cities to the Levites, four spaces in their tribal territory to build cities for the Levites with open spaces, etc. So again, in summation, the Levites need a place to live. The tribe of Levi needs a place to live. And they didn't get a piece of land. So what they get is cities from the other tribes. And each city comes with also an open area, parks, right? An open land as well for the cattle, for whatever it is that they need. Um, and of those 48 cities, six of them are cities of refuge. So there's 48 total. Six of them are cities of refuge where somebody who accidentally killed somebody can have a place to flee. And those are intentionally Levite cities because the Levites are the ones that can influence and take in and love and, 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 and show unconditional love to the person who took a life accidentally. Let's continue. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the children of Israel, you shall take more from a larger holding, you shall take less from a smaller one. In other words, you should take more, more cities 
from a larger tribal area and less from a land and, 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 and fewer from a, from a smaller one. Each one according to the inheritance allotted to him shall give up his cities to the Levites. So I think here the Torah is clarifying that it's not exactly four per tribe. It, it's based on the dynamics of that tribal inheritance. There's no Rashi on this, but it seems pretty, pretty, um, uh, pretty clear. Now, there was, an, it, there was a bit of an issue here with the 1,000 cubits or 2,000 cubits. Now, I said, well, it's 1,000 in each direction, 2,000 across, but, I, yeah, but there is a clarification here uh, that, that uh, Rashi brings from the Talmud. Take a look at this. Rashi says, the, the, well, the Pasuk says 1,000 cubits all around, yet fo- Rashi says, yet following this, it says 2,000 cubits. How can this be? So is it 1,000 cubits or 2,000? So Rashi answers, however, he assigned 2,000 for them around the city, of which the inner 1,000 was for open area and the outer 1,000 for fields and vineyards. So that's your answer. And so I have to modify what I said before and clarify that what it means is the Levites for Levite city planning. They had a city. Let me stop sharing for a moment so I can see everybody. There was a city given by whatever tribe it was. So they had a place to live. They had 1,000 cubits, empty space, perimeter, around the city, empty space, livestock, cattle, parks, fresh air, and then another thousand cubits, fields and vineyards. And thus they lived. That's how, that's how they, uh, they rocked and rolled. So it was, uh, it was a way for them to live like a mensch. They didn't have their own land. They were still at the, I don't know if I'm going to call it mercy because that sounds negative, but they were still dependent. That's a better word. They were still dependent on the other tribes, but at least they had a place to live. Now, I want to focus for a moment on the cities of refuge because that is, I think, a fascinating theme. You see, the mystics tell us that everyone needs a city of refuge from time to time. There was an old Southwest commercial, maybe not so old. You remember that Southwest commercial, the, the series of ads, Want to Get Away? Right? It's like the guy who like, messes up in the office and it's like disaster. It's causing like massive disaster. And he's like, uh-oh. And the tagline is, want to get away? Book a flight in Southwest, whatever it is. We're not sponsored by Southwest, but my point is that sometimes you need to get away. You need to go to a place outside the city, outside your city, a place of serenity, a place of reconnection. Why? Because you took a life. What does that mean? Hold on, hold on, what do I mean? In the physical example, in the literal meaning of the sense that somebody accidentally took a life, then they go to a city of refuge. What does it mean spiritually? In other words, let me back up a second. What I'm trying to do here is give you a spiritual understanding of this mitzvah. Every mitzvah, every verse, every area of Torah has a physical application as well as a metaphysical application. I'm giving you the metaphysical application. So life has been granted to us by God for a reason. We've been granted life for a very specific reason, for to fulfill our mission on earth, to make the world a better place, etc. What happens if we misappropriate that energy? What happens if we take God's energy and we use it for something that's not exactly what, what God wanted us to do? Well, that's, uh, that's called taking a life. It means redirecting or misdirecting the energy from where it was supposed to go to another place. So it's, it's kind of diverting the flow of life from its intended place to an unintended place. So it's not exactly, you know, manslaughter, but it's kind of sort of like taking some sort of life and moving it to a different place where it should not have been. And thus, following those moments, we need places of refuge, cities of refuge. And what does that mean for us? Prayer, Torah study, synagogue, 
mitzvah opportunities, those are our cities of refuge. A city of refuge essentially is a time and a place, a space, whether physical or metaphysical, in which we can reconnect with our true source, with um, our North Star, if you will, with who we really are, reconnect with our true identity. So oftentimes we get caught up in this, that, or the other, and we, we find ourselves misdirected. We have moments of city of refuge where we can reconnect and come back to our core and from that place rejuvenate and, uh, and get back to where we need to be. That is a spiritual meaning of city of refuge. Ray, jump in. Hold on, you're muted. Let me ask you to unmute. You got okay, it. so I know it's not exactly the same, but in the United States recently, there are states that have cities where you can commit a crime and you're arrested and you're let go. And um, they're not called cities of refuge. Well, I don't know what they're called, but you know what I'm referring to in I, the United States. I don't know, but I don't believe that that's what we're talking about, right? We're not talking no, no, about... Not. Right. So I, yeah. I don't know about, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you're referencing, but I'll tell you this, that everyone, everyone, including, well, present company excluded. No one, there's no righteous person in the world who only does good and never makes a mistake. We all make mistakes. The question is, what do we do when we make a mistake? And the Torah is telling us, that there needs to be a place that we can go, either physical or metaphysical, but a space that we can go to repair, a space that we can go to rehabilitate ourselves. Spiritually, spiritual rehabilitation. Now, how does that play out in the criminal justice system? This is way beyond the conversation today, although we, ha we have had a course on criminal justice reform, crime and consequence, where we discuss these topics, and the Jewish perspective on incarceration, which, by the way, the, the, short of the, story, the, the, the short version is Torah is, not, is, is against incarceration. Torah is about rehabilitation, not about incarceration, although that it's, again, a much bigger topic than what we can cover right now. But here's the point. The bottom line is that it, it's not really about anyone else. It's about us. Like, what do I do when I feel disconnected, when I feel like I'm scattered, when I feel like you know, I'm, I have this. I have the, these these gifts, these energy, the energy that life that Hashem has given me, and I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not right where I need to be. So what do I do? To be stuck, there's no kunst to be stuck. In other words, it doesn't. It's not. It's not complicated to get stuck. What's complicated is to get unstuck. So the question is, where do I go to get unstuck? Right? To get stuck is easy. To get unstuck, that's where the skill comes in. So I need to have a city of refuge. And where's the city of refuge? In the Levite cities. So we know already what it means. It's a spiritual place. Levites, the Levites are, you know, the spiritual people. So it means plugging back in, plugging back into my spiritual core, davening like a mensch, right? Praying like, a, like, like I should, doing a mitzvah, studying Torah, creating these spaces. Look, this is real. Honestly, for being honest, this is one of the reasons for a DPP. One of the reasons for DPP is to create a city of refuge, a mini refuge in middle of the day, I'm supposed to be 10 minutes, but whatever. Anyway, in the middle of the day, a place, a refuge to be able to plug in to our core, to our center, spiritual center. And then when we go back in, hopefully, you know, we have, uh, we, we, we're, we're on a good path. All right. It does make a difference. It does. Well, good. I'm, I'm happy. Thank you. I'm ha my pleasure. All right. Let's, so that's reading number six. Oh, it yes. It during the pandemic. So, yes, it did. You know. 
We all needed that too. Don, I need to clarify something. It didn't start during the pandemic. It started like day one of the pandemic. We were like, we were on it. We were on it. I mean, day two or day three. It's true. I mean, because I went to the Shabbat, the Saturday Shabbat, with the theme of the pre-pandemic theme. Right. And then I know. And then right. And then. I believe we started Tuesday. I mean, maybe not that Monday, but I think the Tuesday we, we were already up and running. Okay, let's, we still have one more reading. Let's do this, and I'm going to share my screen once again. Here we go. Okay, let's get reading seven. Boom. Um, all right, the Lord, the, oh, oh, this is the last reading of our portion Matot uh, Mase, so the last portion, last reading, sorry, reading of Mase. And it's the last reading of the entire book of Numbers. Book number four. We're about to conclude. Upon conclusion, we say Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak. And we celebrate. All right. Hope you, hope you all have champagne wherever you are. Numbers chapter 35. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, in case you're wondering, yes, this is the most frequent phrase in the entire Torah. This is absolutely the most frequent verse in the entire Torah. God says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, maybe that's number two, when you cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan, you shall designate cities for yourselves. They shall be cities of refuge for you and a murderer who killed a person unintentionally shall flee there. The Torah is picking up on the theme that we just mentioned. But there we right. mention in the context of Levite cities. Now it's mentioned in the context of the mitzvah itself. You see what I'm talking about? Before we said, give cities to the Levites. And of those 48 cities of the Levites, six of them should be cities of refuge for those that committed murder unintentionally, etc. Now the Torah says, well, what are the laws of the cities of refuge? Here we go. So again, you shall designate cities for yourselves, cities of refuge, and a murderer who killed a person unintentionally shall flee there. Let's continue. I have so, there's a lot to say about this. The city shall serve you as, refu as a refuge from an avenger. The avengers, right? So there, are, there might be an avenger of the one who lost their life looking for revenge. I guess avengers look for revenge. Revenge, avenge. Avenge, revenge. So you need a place to hide or to take refuge. So that the murderer, this is a place, a safe space, so that the murderer shall not die until he stands in judgment before the congregation. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't have to stand in, in judgment. We have to know whether or not it was intentional or unintentional. I mean, he's claiming it was unintentional. How do we know? So obviously it's going to go in front of, in front of the court, right? It's obviously going to go in front of the court, but until that point, we have a safe space. The cities that you provide shall serve as six cities of refuge for you, as we mentioned before. You shall provide the three cities in the Transjordan and the three cities in the land of Canaan. Look at that. The Transjordan is the other side of the Jordan, which means the, the area that the two and a half tribes were getting. Remember we spoke about that a few days ago? Yes, Reuven and God and half of Manasseh, they took the land on the other side of the Jordan in the plains of Moab. Okay, good. So three cities of refuge there and three cities in the land of Canaan, i.e. the land of Israel. That's six total. They shall be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be, of, uh, shall be a refuge for the children of Israel and for the proselyte and resident among them so that anyone who unintentionally kills a person can flee there. Okay, now... 
One second, I want to see something. Okay, let's get into these laws. If he struck, verse 16, if he struck him with an iron instrument and he dies, okay? If the fellow struck him with an iron instrument and, and he dies, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall be put to death, capital punishment. Obviously, you have to go through the process and witnesses and all that stuff. Okay, but theoretically, it's up for capital punishment. And that's if he struck him with an iron instrument and he dies. In other words, that's intentional. He did it. He used a, 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 used a, a lethal object. That's it. Boom. Boom shakalaka. That's, that's the way it is. Um, oh, Sarah's asking the chat. One second. Sarah asked East. Um, yes. You're asking East of the Jordan? Is that what you're clarifying? Yeah, other side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan. Yes, that's exactly what okay. we're talking about. Yes, exactly. The other, right. In other words, ironically, it's where they actually are in this conversation. In this conversation, they're on that eastern side of the Jordan. The point is that when you go in, create three cities of refuge in and also back over here outside. Exactly. On the east side of the Jordan. But these cities of refuge are really only for the person who unintentionally kills. So the Torah clarifies in verse 16, if he kills him, sorry, if he struck him with an iron instrument and he dies, well, then that's not unintentional. That's murder. And he's put to death again if it ends up at that point. If he struck him with a fist-sized stone, which is deadly, and he dies, again, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall be put to death. Or with a fist-sized wooden instrument, which is deadly, and he dies, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. So in any of these cases, if, if the fellow, if the assailant strikes the victim with a lethal object and the victim dies, that's what we, and he did it, and the, the assailant did it intentionally, he intended to hit him with a lethal object and the fellow died because of that blow, it's a capital crime. Whether it ends up in the, in, in, in the ultimate punishment, that's depending on if we have witnesses or not. But the crime is a capital crime. That's what the Torah is clarifying. Okay, let's continue. The blood avenger shall kill the murderer. He may kill him when he meets him. Here the Torah says, you know what? I know, it sounds like vigilante justice, right? The blood avenger, okay. that means a relative, shall kill the murderer. He may kill him when he meets him. That's what it sounds like. Let's see if there's a Rashi here. But that's definitely what it sounds like. Even in, the cities, even in the cities of refuge, if he sneaks in, seems like he can, uh, he can kill him. In other words, it doesn't mean that he should. It just means if he does, it seems like that's not considered murder. Does that make sense? If the blood avenger... Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. Uh, by the way, disclaimer, please, please do, not, do not operate based on what we're discussing today. Because your laws may vary in various municipalities. So that's, that's that. But getting back to what we're saying over here, if the fellow is actually guilty of murder, and it's a capital crime, and I would assume that there are witnesses and everything lined up for that, and before the, 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 um, the, the, the case, the court case happens, the blood avenger kills the murderer, it seems what the Torah is saying is there's no capital punishment for the blood avenger who kills the murderer because 
You're killing essentially a dead man walking, if that makes sense. This person will be liable for the death penalty. You're killing a dead man. The question, though, is how do you know that he's guilty of murder without going through the trial? With, no, it's not a trial. Without going through the court case first. I don't have a good answer for that, but I'm sure the Talmud discussed it at length. So again, please don't operate based on biblical verses without the full scope of Talmudic law in your back pocket. Let's continue. Or if, let's continue, the next scenario. If out of hatred, premeditated, he pushed him or threw something at him with premeditation and he died, or if he maliciously struck him with his hand and he died, the assailant shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger may kill the murderer when he meets him. So we've had so far two scenarios where capital, where it's a capital crime, and if the if the blood avenger strikes back, where it's not, uh, he kills him, where it's not, it's not murder on, on the second guy's part. And they are they are these two cases are where somebody uses a lethal weapon, God forbid to kill someone else, or if he doesn't use a lethal weapon, he uses his hands, pushes him, or strikes him, and and kills him by striking him. He is a murderer. So what we've defined here so far is that what is considered a lethal weapon? Iron, what did we say? We said iron instrument, a stone, a wooden instrument, fist-sized wooden instrument. All of these are lethal weapons. And hands are also lethal weapons. Um, next scenario, verse 22. But if he pushed him accidentally, without malice, or threw an object at him without premeditation, or with any stone which is deadly and without seeing his victim, he threw it down at him and killed him. But he was not his enemy and bore him no malice. So in other words, he pushed him by accident, threw something at him by accident. He didn't know he was there. Um, yeah, any stone which is deadly without seeing his victim, he threw it down. Yeah, somebody, somebody's just throwing down stuff. He didn't know that somebody was down there. Hit him, hit the guy, he killed him. He didn't know. It wasn't his enemy. There was no malice. Then the congregation shall judge between the assailant and the blood avenger on the basis of these judgments. And the congregation shall protect the murderer from the hand of the blood avenger. And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall remain there until the Kohen Gadol who anointed him with the oil, with the sacred oil dies. That's, that's the law. The law is that if a person is found guilty of, I don't know what the English, what the American term is. Is it manslaughter? Is it, I don't know, whatever the term is. Basically, he kills a guy, but he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't mean harm. It wasn't premeditated. It wasn't accidental. Accident, so he's not, he's not off the hook. He still, still took the life of someone. But he's but it's not liable for the death penalty because he didn't do it on purpose. Not like he, he hated him and, and, and wanted to kill him. It's an accident. So what does he do? He lives he lives in the city of refuge. He goes back to the city of refuge. And he remains there until the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, dies. By the way, it says in the Talmud that the Kohen Gadol's mother, the high priest's mother, would bring food to the people who lived in the city of refuge. Why? Because so that they wouldn't pray for the death of the Kohen Gadol. They were in the city of refuge until the Kohen Gadol passes away. <coughs> so you can imagine they were probably praying for his death. So the mother of the Kohen Gadol, the mother of the high priest, would bring them food, the Talmud says, so that they're not so upset, they're not so unhappy in that space. By the way, the city of refuge wasn't a bad place to be. It was a city with Levites, inspiration, Torah, etc. It wasn't like um, a dungeon. It wasn't like a pit of doom. It was, it was a city. All right, but if the murderer... Someone, excuse yeah. me, could someone go there voluntarily? Could they... 
I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a vacation spot. But I can't say for sure. It doesn't seem like that, but I'm not sure. It was a Levite city otherwise, plus these, um, these things. By the way, you know, there's an interesting statement that says, um, I think in the Mishnah, that when somebody is, or the Talmud, when somebody is exiled to the city of refuge, their teacher goes with them. The teacher goes with them. I don't know if it means that the teacher has to move there permanently, but the point is that you can't leave someone without inspiration. They have to have that. Now, there are plenty, pl- plenty of Levites there to give inspiration, nonetheless. All right, let's continue verse 26. But if the murderer goes beyond the border of the city of refuge to which he had fled, uh-oh, he didn't listen. We told him to go to the city of refuge, but he went past it. And the blood avenger finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge. And the blood avenger slays the murderer. He has no blood. In other words, it's not, it's not murder. If you murder the murderer, it's not murder. Because he wasn't in the city of refuge. For he shall remain in the, in the city of refuge until the Kohen Gadol dies. And only after the Kohen Gadol has died, the high priest has died, may the murderer return to the land which is in his possession. Which is his possession. Alright, so these are the laws. And again, you have to understand, with all biblical laws, the way it's described in Torah is the Bare minimum. Basic, basic laws that are expanded upon in the Mishnah, the Talmud, based on the oral tradition, based on inferences from the verses and, and deduce, deductions, not deductions like tax deductions, but, you know, um, deducing from the verses. There's a lot of discussion about all these laws. So what you see is not the only thing that's out there. There's a lot more to explore. Let's continue. These shall be, I think I just read this, a statute of justice for all your generations, all your dwelling places. Let's continue verse 30. Whoever, namely the blood avenger, kills a person based on the testimony of witnesses, he shall slay the murderer, a single witness. Here we go. Now we have the laws of capital cases. A a single witness may not testify against a person so that he should die. So when it comes to capital crime, you cannot use a single witness. Somebody says, oh, I saw this guy kill the other guy. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You have to have two witnesses. You shall not accept ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, for he shall be put to death. You cannot, you cannot accept a payout. Imagine the family of the murderer says, oh, don't put him to death, we'll give you money. Can't do that. Can't do a ransom for the life of the murderer. Rather, if it's capital, if capital crime, he shall be put to death. And again, I just want to clarify. The Talmud says that if a betin, if a court of Jewish court, the Jewish high court put someone to, if they had put applied capital punishment, put someone to death more than once in 70 years, they were a bloody court. They had blood on their hands. Very rare that this would happen. The Torah says, yeah, he shall be put to death. But for that to happen, I, I, I don't want to rehash, I don't want to do, go through this right now. Um, Jewish, um, the, 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 the protocol for capital cases, but it is so, the burden of evidence is so high that for this to actually happen would be very rare. So in rare cases, this is what would happen. Otherwise, the Torah is telling us how severe this is. You shall not accept ransom for one who has fled to a city of refuge to allow him to return to live in the land. Someone who needs to go to the city of refuge, do not take cash to let them go back before the Kohen has died. That's not how it works. And you shall not corrupt the land in which you live, for the blood corrupts the land. This is a, this is a reference to having law and order and not allowing murder and killing to be widespread because that will corrupt the land and it will take the lives of people. Do not corrupt the land for the blood corrupts the land. 
and the blood which is shed in the land cannot be atoned for except through the blood of the one who shed it. Wow. There you go. The Torah is not against capital punishment. The Torah says the blood that is shed, the only way to atone for it is through the blood of the one who shed it. You know, people say, what's the point of killing the killer? Right? You're just adding more bloodshed. The Torah doesn't exactly subscribe to that way of thinking. The Torah says, no, the blood which is shed can be atoned only through the blood of the one who shed it. According to Kabbalah, the reason is because the one who took life, they have effectively ended their purpose on earth. Their purpose on earth constituted, you know, they have, everyone has a mission, everyone has a purpose. The moment that person takes a life, they have opted out of the system. So their body has no longer a utility, their soul has no more function on earth. So why not let them live out? It's through the, ex- through the capital punishment that their soul is, uh, achieves atonement. Again, it was so super rare. Once in 70 years, it was considered to be a bloody Sanhedrin, a bloody high court. Nonetheless, this is the severity of the crime of murder. Let's continue verse 34. And you shall not defile the land in which you reside, or where you reside, in which I dwell, in which I dwell. Look at this. God says, I dwell there also. I dwell in the land of Israel. For I am the Lord who dwells among the children of Israel. There you have it. There you have it. I hope everybody has an extra, you know, a little extra villa, right? Forgot to hang out. A little uh, extra cabin. Let's continue with the end of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 36, the final chapter. The paternal heads of the family, the sons of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the families of the sons of Joseph, approached and spoke before Moses and before the chieftains, the paternal heads of the children of Israel. So, this Manasseh family comes before Moses. They said, The Lord commanded my master to give the land as an inheritance through Lot to the children of Israel, and our master was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Tzalafchad, our brother, to his daughters. Remember this. Remember Tzalafchad. Always coming back. Tzalafchad is the guy who died and didn't have sons, only had daughters. And they, the daughters asked Moses for a piece of the land, and Moses says, Let me take it up with God. And God says, Yes. Remember that story? God said yes to the daughters of Tzalafchad's request for land. Good. So now the paternal heads are coming to Moses and saying, we got a problem. We have a mathematical problem. Right? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is, so we're going to give land to these, to these daughters, and then they're going to marry some guy from another tribe. And then what's going to happen is, so land in Menashe's portion, owned by this young woman, who gets married to a guy, let's say, from the tribe of Reuben. So now, what's going to happen? The husband is now going to have property in his own tribe, and his wife has property in the other tribe. And now the tribes, the tribal properties, the, 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 the sections are being mixed. Are you with me on this? Does that make sense? Well, they didn't say that yet, but they're going to say this right here. Verse 2. They said, The Lord commanded my master to give the land as an inheritance through through Lot to the children of Israel. And our master was... No, we did read this. And our master was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Tzalafchad, our brother, to his daughters. Now, here we go. Verse 3. Here's the kicker. Here's the problem. Now, if they marry a member of another tribe of the children of Israel, their inheritance will be diminished from the inheritance of our father. In other words, let's say um, there was a woman named Machla. Machla was one of the five daughters. So Machla gets a piece of land. Machla marries 
a dude, a guy named, um, let's call him Ruvain. Let's make it easy. Machla from Menashe marries this guy Ruvain from the tribe of Ruvain. And now she, because you go after the husband, because then her kids go after. So now that's like, Rub, now it's Reubenite, a Reubenite family. And her property is now part of the, Rub, the, the tribe of Reuven, but it's in Menashe's territory. So that's the problem. If they marry a, a member of another tribe, their inheritance will be diminished from the inheritance of our father and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry. Thus, it will be diminished from the lot of our inheritance. So what's going to happen is we give these daughters, we give these girls, young women, a, a piece of the land when they get married to another tribe's, uh, to another, a man from another tribe, it's going to get pulled away from our tribe. Even if the children of Israel have a jubilee, their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their, and their inheritance will be diminished from the inheritance of her father's tribe. It always goes by patrilineal. It goes, always goes by the, by the husband or the father when it comes to the land. And thus, forever, this land that started off as, as Menashe's land is going to end up as Ruvain's land in Menashe's territory. And so you're going to have, just imagine, you're going to have a state. Imagine a square. State. It's the state of Menashe. And inside the state... There's like a mini-state that's Reuven's state inside Menashe's state. That doesn't sound right. It's not fair. Doesn't sound healthy. Doesn't sound like it's problematic. What do you do? Moses has an easy answer. What's the whole problem? The whole problem is that they're going to marry a guy from another tribe. So what's the solution? Unmute yourself if you can come up with the solution. What's the solution? The problem is you're going to take the land in Menashe's territory, marry out to another tribe. And now that other tribe has a claim to this land. So what's the solution? Who should the girls marry? Within the tribe. Within the tribe. That's it. See that? Sarah, you could be Moses. Boom. So Moses commanded, in verse 5, Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of Joseph descends speaks justly. This is the word that the Lord has commanded regarding Tzalafcha's daughters. Let them marry whomever they please, but, <laughs> I love that, whomever they please, as long as, but they shall marry only to the family of their father's tribe. Okay, that's a compromise. So you can, you, so listen, five daughters of Tzalafchad, you got, marry whoever you want, the choice is yours, as long as they are from the family of Joseph or Manasseh, etc., and that way, thus, the inheritance of the children of Israel will not be transferred from tribe to tribe. For each person from the children of Israel will remain attached to the inheritance of his father's tribe. And this becomes a rule. Verse 8, every daughter from the tribes of the children of Israel who inherits property. Again, that was the situation where there were no sons, only daughters. Every daughter who inherits property, this is the hard and fast rule shall always marry a member of her father's tribe, so, so each one of the children of Israel shall inherit the property of his forefathers. So again, like it is in this case, it should be in all similar cases. Anytime there's a situation where there's a father who passes away, and there are no sons, and there's only daughters, and so the daughters, by the law, receive a portion of the land of that tribe, when they get married, they need to marry someone from their own tribe. Why? Because if they married somebody from another tribe, that patrilineal stuff, that tribe would now have a flag in the middle of someone else's tribal territory. And no inheritance 
will be transferred from tribe from one tribe to another tribe, for each person of the tribes of the children of Israel shall remain attached to his own inheritance. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so did Salafchad's daughters do. Machla, oh, that was the example that I gave. Machla, Tirza, Chagla, Milka, and Noah married their cousins. There you go. They met. It's interesting that there was such a a wish to keep the tribes, you know, uh, segregated. Se- yeah, separate. So and it's now we yeah. don't even know what tribe we came from. That's the irony. So it's interesting. It's very, very interesting. There seems to have been following God's lead. Look, I I, I want to ask your question differently. You ready? Why is it that there needed to be any tribal? territorial business. Who cares? Right? Jews are Drew, Jews. Right? Children of Israel are children of Israel. Go into the land. Settle where you want. What's the big deal? So we understand. I've explained, you know, we've talked about this many times, the idea that each tribe has its own path in life and its own avoda, its own service, its own identity, its own flag, its own path, its own stream of water or well of water, whatever it is. Every tribe had its own identity. And God loves diversity. The one God loves diversity. We have a problem with diversity. <laughs> we look at the other that's different and say, oh, you're different. Nah, you're no good. Right. That's a human flaw. God loves diversity. So this exercises our ability to appreciate diversity, tolerance of diversity, not only tolerance, but maybe love of diversity, appreciation of diversity. But diversity means diversity. Diversity means that you have clearly defined boundaries. Otherwise, it's a melting pot. Um, and that was the goal. So really, the Jews were following God's lead. God had wanted them to remain distinct. And the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh were saying, look, we're just doing the math here. Right? We're going to give this, land, we're gonna give this space, not, not a, right, this, this, these acres of land to Machla. She's going to get married to a guy from Ruvain. Well, then it goes by the, fa- by the husband, father, whatever. So now this is Reubenite land in middle of Manasseh. That's blurring the boundaries. That's, that's it's complicated. God says, you're right. Or Moses says, you're right. Hashem told me to tell you that uh, indeed they should marry from within the tribe. But you're right. The irony is now we don't know who's from these tribes. Ten lost tribes. We don't know exactly who's from which tribe. Yeah, um, but what we do know is that even without knowing tribes, we do know that everyone's different. <laughs> All Jews are different. Different types, different stripes. Everyone's got their customs. Ashkenaz, Sfard, right? Etc. And the message is still the same, right? We appreciate diversity. Not just tolerate diversity. That sounds like begrudgingly, but appreciate diversity. Let's continue. And, and to this, I referenced the story that I said, I think, last week about the coach. The Harlem Globetrotters, right? We need a coach. We need diversity. Everyone's looking black hats, black jackets, white shirts. We need some diversity. We need a basketball coach here, the Rebbe says. Come, be the coach of the Fabrengans in 770 in the in synagogue. All right, back inside. Finally, they mar- so verse 11 was they married their cousins. I, I don't know if it literally means cousins, but they married within the tribe, which is, generally speaking, cousins or relatives. They married into the families of the sons of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained with the tribe of their father's family. This is it. These are the commandments and the ordinances that the Lord commanded the children of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And let us say it together, Chazak, 
חזק. חזק. ונס, ונס חזק. There you go. That's it. That's what we say upon concluding a book of the Torah, which means be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened so that we have the ability, the strength, the inspiration to continue studying and to come back to this book in the right time. All right, that concludes the book. So what's the moral of the story? Man, there's lots of stories here. What's the moral of the story? Number one, don't kill anybody. Number two, it's good to have a city of refuge. For, uh, for the times that we need it in our own personal lives. Um, another idea here is the idea of diversity, appreciating distinction, diversity, appreciating um, difference, celebrating difference. Not something just to tolerate, but to celebrate. Baruch Hashem, thank God, I'm different than you, you're different than me. Um, the Kutzka Rebbe once said, he was very sharp, very, very sharp statements. He said, if I, am, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I, and you are not you. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then we can get along together. In other words, if I am I because you are you, that means that if I am I based on who you are, which means that I'm pretending to be like you, and you're pretending to be like me, and so I, when I meet you and I converse with you, I, I'm not expressing my opinion, I'm just telling you what, you, what I think you want to hear, then there's no relationship here. Right? There's no me, there's no you, everyone's pretending, and what do we have? But if I am I because I am I, you are you because you are you, then we have two, two individuals, two distinct individuals, that can now have a relationship. Reminds us about identity. It's good to be proud of who we are. We don't have to be like everyone else. What's popular is not always right. What's right is not always popular just because everyone else does something like our mothers would tell us back in the day, right? If, if everyone else would jump off the Empire State Building, would you also, right? That, that, that line, at least it's the line that was going around when I was a kid. Um, yeah, so just because everyone else, doesn't matter. This is who you are. You can be different. You can be different. I've told this story before, but I want to end with it here. It's like the little bird who one day is crying to her mother. She says, I have these heavy things that are growing on me. I can't walk and run anymore. What is this? Take them off. Mother says, no, these are not burdens. These are wings. They will help you soar and fly. Which reminds us that a bird is different than what doesn't fly. I mean, so many things don't fly, right? A cow. A bird is different than a cow. <laughs> Cows don't fly, right? Unless you put a cow in an airplane, a cow doesn't fly. Birds fly. A bird could say, why do I have these things on my back? I want to be like a cow. I want to walk around. I want to, well, cows don't run. Okay, cheetah. Maybe we have to modify it. Cheetahs run fast. I want to be like a cheetah. We say to the bird, listen, cheetahs are cheetahs and birds are birds. Be a bird. Don't be a cheetah. We need you as you are. We need a coach. We need you exactly as you are. You with your distinct qualities, your individuality. Don't be like everyone else. As Mark Twain once said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> and, uh, and that, I think, kind of summarizes it. All right, my, my friend. Yes. My cat, Bo, thinks he's a big cat. You know, he's a cute little domestic cat, but right. he acts as if he has the mannerisms of a tiger, of a lion, you know, in That's the hilarious. Wild. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know what? It's good to have confidence. <laughs> it's good to have confidence. Yeah. But it's also good to know your limitations. Because if right. you, yeah. 
Anyway, all right, great to see everybody. I want to wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom. Very special Shabbat this week. Hey, Sarah, good to see you. Is this a Florida background? Um, yeah, this is a parking lot. It's my lunch break. Okay, yeah, it's but, a parking lot but it's Florida. Yeah. Florida. Okay. In Florida. Yeah. Nice, nice. <laughs> it's good to see sunny Florida. Um, so, uh, the special Shabbat. Why is it special? Number one, tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh, the first of the new month. The month that we're starting tonight and tomorrow is Menachem Av, the month of Av, which is the saddest month in the Jewish calendar. It's the month in which the temple was, both temples were destroyed and lots of negative things happened. So it's a time of introspection and reflection and also remembering that it's all about rebuilding. As Kabbalah teaches and Hasidic philosophy teaches, um, when you want to build a greater building, a greater edifice than you had before, the way to do it is by knocking down the previous, the previous building, right? You do demo and then you do Demolition, as the kids would call it, and then, you, uh, and then you can build something new. So yes, we have destruction, which is painful, but we know, as we talked about once in the Torah class, that every descent is really a step up for the ascent. So even as we recognize the, the challenges of this month, historically, we look toward the future, toward a better time. So tomorrow's Rosh Chodesh, although it begins the month of Av, Shabbat is always a happy day. So it's a day to celebrate, to fabring, to connect, and... Um, and to be inspired. All right, that's it for today. Um, Sunday, we are back in person for Kabbalah and Coffee as well as online. And then, of course, Tuesday night, we have the big archaeology. Why does that not sound like I'm saying it right? Whatever. That event, archaeological claim to Jerusalem, Tuesday night at 8, followed by the... Um, oh, we also have Monday in person, Pichi Parsha DPP, as well as Wednesday night Torah studies in person, as well as online, all of the above. Okay, I hope that made sense. I went out of order, but anyway. All right, wishing you all Shabbat Shalom. Take care, everybody. Be well. Bye.